Hi, this is Andy Katz, host of March Madness 365, presented by Grammarly. This week on the podcast, listen as we break down the latest AP poll and give you insights on my updated Power 36. Listen to March Madness 365 with Andy Katz, presented by Grammarly, wherever you get your podcasts. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that gives your team an instant first draft in a few clicks, not a few hours. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. Grammarly works seamlessly across 500,000 apps and websites. Get personalized on-brand writing help everywhere your team works. Learn what better writing can do for your company at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Pam Greer was 21 years old when she flew from Los Angeles to the Philippines to make her first movie, a 17-hour flight, to be an actor, which was never her plan. She'd never even auditioned before. But what she lacked in experience, she made up for in hard work. And the film's producers also saw something else. They just felt I looked like the character who'd been in prison and couldn't get their hair done. Okay. (laughs) I didn't get their eyebrows plucked because I couldn't afford it. I had a unibrow and a mustache. (laughs) The movie was called The Big Dollhouse. The director was Jack Hill, a veteran of low-budget exploitation movies. He'd made 10 of them so far. His biggest hit was a film named Spider Baby. Spider Baby has the seductive innocence of Lolita and the savage hunger of a black widow. Spider Baby... The whole production had a fly-by-night feel. So the funny part about that is when I was in Manila, I didn't know who were coming until they got off the plane. But fortunately, Pam was one of the girls who got off the plane... Pam had a book with her, sort of a Bible for actors. It was recommended to her by the movie's producer, Roger Corman. Roger was the king of low-budget cult films. So, uh, Roger, we go in, and he says, well, I'm, I'm glad you decided to take the job. He said, Roger, you can't fire me. He says, I will not fire you. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to read this book of how the actor prepares by Konstantin Stanislavski. You get that book, you read it, and it will help you become an actor. You will know what's going on. And the one thing I said to my mom and Roger, if I quit all these jobs to become an actor, I better be really good at this. I better find a way to always study and be better and be all those inspirations that I've read about and seen. Pam felt the pressure. If she failed, she didn't know whether her five part-time jobs would be waiting for her back in Los Angeles. And if she made it as an actor, the decisions got even harder. Could she give it all up to marry her boyfriend, a young basketball star named Kareem Abdul-Jabbar? I'm your host, Ben Mankiewicz. You're listening to Season 4 of The Plot Thickens, a podcast from Turner Classic Movies. This season, Pam Greer, 
and how she rose to become the queen of blaxploitation films and Hollywood's first female action hero. This is episode three, An Actor Prepares. Pam arrived in the Philippines just five days after a devastating typhoon. It destroyed the harbor and airport facilities in Manila. Pam landed in what was left of it. It didn't take long for her to find a friend. The first thing I did was my driver found a little kitten in the gutter, and I adopted a kitten. She spent the night sleeping off her jet lag. The kitten slept in her luggage. She was expected on set the next day, her first day as a working actress. She was all nerves. And it's not easy. It's daunting to a person who's never done it before. And when they're all of a sudden they're acting and they're walking, you know, what do I do? This is for, you just can't do it. And I just didn't want to fail because I really wanted to go to school. The Big Dollhouse was a women in prison film, part of a growing genre of cheaply made exploitation movies. Exploitation basically means instead of having a pre-sold book, novel, or stars, you have an idea. You have an idea that's controversial that the big studios with their big budgets would be afraid to touch. Women locked behind walls of concrete and steel, guarded by barbed wire and guns in a tropical hell. They call it the Big Dollhouse. Pam played a character named Greer, Helen Greer. She was bisexual and tough. It was a big role, a loud role. God damn it, listen, you toady bitch. I'm gonna get you out of here, but I can't do it with you yelling your fool head off. Now forget about getting your cred tonight because there's no way. Now shut your filthy mouth. Pam had one outfit throughout the whole movie, a yellow tank top just long enough to masquerade as a dress. Sometimes she wore an orange shirt over it. The shirt said prison on the back, just in case the audience forgets the women are locked up. It was a physically demanding role. Her character gets into a mud fight with another actress, survives a sexual assault, and has a grueling death scene. Pam relied on that Stanislavski book. She read it constantly. She wouldn't go out at night with her castmates. She'd stay in and rehearse her lines. On set, Pam had questions. She wanted to know about lighting and special effects, and about acting. A lot of the crew in the Philippines didn't speak English, so she asked director Jack Hill. He's white with a beard and skinny and scratching. He just had this habit of scratching his beard and just thinking, hmm, hmm, like Freud, you know, so I'm like, why are you scratching your beard? Are you making me scratch? Jack was a laid-back director. He was patient with Pam. He encouraged her. When she had a scene... He told her exactly where she needed to be. Pam, you'll do this, and I want you to stand over here and light the cigarette. The cam- the lights will be on you. You'll stand here by the bed. I was so impressed that I thought, if I have someone like him in every film, then I'll be okay. And I just giggled a lot and just played myself. Your old man really takes good care of you, don't I, honey? Yeah, Greer. I was just like a kid in a sandbox. And he liked it. And I thought he would say, no, don't do that. Put your, don't do, he, not one time. Her boyfriend is up in the mountain trying to start a revolution. And I am like, 
out there and my fro was big. And that's what Jack liked, that I was in their face. What, 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 you know, what? And I didn't have to curse. I just stepped in your face, you know, and it brought the other actresses out. So I think that's what he and Roger saw, that I had this rawness that I brought to the work. I don't want to spoil an actor's performance by trying to impose something on them or even asking what they're doing. I prefer to be surprised. Pam comes into this situation with no acting experience at all. Did you help her? Yes and no. Um, Actually, Sid Haig helped her a lot, as actors do working with each other. Sid Haig was tall and bald, with the textured, pockmarked face of a character actor. He was often cast as the heavier villain. He had plenty of acting experience, too, especially in low-budget movies. I was really taken by Pam Greer the first time we met, uh, which was in the Philippines. Uh, We were doing uh, The Big Dollhouse. And she just was this striking woman who had a magnetism to her that just compelled you to focus on her and want to know more about who and what she was. Pam and Sid hit it off right away. Their chemistry showed up on screen, too. Sid played a local named Harry who sold produce at the prison. In one scene... Pam reaches through the bars of her cell and snatches a pack of Harry's cigarettes. She lets him get real close and pretends to seduce him. Forget it, Helen. I know you dig girls. I'm not this way because I want to be. It's this place. Pretty soon, a girl gets strange desires, and it creeps upon you like a disease. But it's curable. What does it take? A real man. Sid mentored Pam on set, coaching her through day-long rehearsals. Sid would guide me, saying, okay, you're fantastic. Are you sure, Sid? Did I do okay? He says, I don't know how to tell you, but you did better than okay. He says, I don't know where you get it from, but we can't take our eyes off of you. And that made me even more nervous. And I told him, I said, I didn't think I was going to be an actor. I was just going to make three or four movies, make tuition money, and go to school. And he said, you'll be making a big mistake. That's what he told me. Sid saw something special in Pam. It was what Jack Hill called authority. It gave Pam that edge. She also had discipline. She was so afraid of screwing up, she prepared late into the night studying lines and thinking about how she'd approach a scene. That combination eventually catapulted Pam from obscurity to stardom. The Big Doll House was made on the cheap. That meant fast, no frills. That's why they were shooting in the Philippines. They can do it cheap. Like, their dollar will be like $3 in America. And the fact that, like, The Philippines is fucking gorgeous. You know, if you're doing a jungle picture, well, you got it made. That's Quentin Tarantino, the Oscar-winning screenwriter and director of movies like Pulp Fiction and Inglorious Bastards. Today, Tarantino is one of the signature filmmakers of his generation. He's also an expert on exploitation movies, which in the 60s and 70s was a genre defined by Roger Corman. Roger Corman was starting New World Pictures. He quits AIP and starts his own company, New World Pictures. And so he needs a 
like a slate of films, not just one or two or three. He needs like 12 movies, you know, to really kind of set his company up. Okay, so if I'm going to leave Los Angeles and I'm going to send a couple of actors to a location because I actually think it's picturesque enough for us to shoot, well, since the most expensive thing is paying for the actor's plane tickets to go over there, while I'm there, might as well shoot two movies. If the locations are that picturesque, why not do two? And that was the plan. After the big dollhouse wrapped, Roger Corman would use many of the same crew and the same costumes and the same actors to make more movies. The crew was made up mostly of locals, and according to Jack Hill, they were pretty good. But the on-set safety standards were different. What was really weak was the things that they never thought of, like wardrobe, you know, the props. They had machine guns that kept jamming every, every time you fired them. You know, it was just... Oh, and we had a scene where we had to have a, a guy set on fire. And in the States, you know, they do a lot of protective stuff there. They just light him up and he jumps in the water when it gets hot. And I'm not kidding. So they light a, a human being on fire and then he jumps in the water when... Yeah, well, they put, you know, uh, whatever chemicals in his clothes to make the fire. But the water is right there so he can jump in if it gets hot. If it gets hot. When it gets hot. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> the best thing about working in the Philippines was the costs. In terms of time, your number of days is the most expensive item in a budget shooting normally. In the Philippines, that's your cheapest item. You've got all the time you want to do anything. So I was able to really do a lot of stuff that I wouldn't have been able to do on, on a tight schedule. Jack and Pam quickly learned that there were a lot of rules about filming in the jungle. Don't do this and don't go over there. There's cobras over there and don't do that. In the Philippines, they're used to handling cobras. They got people who have been inoculated against a venom by surviving having been bitten and the trainers. And they're very, very good. They know how to get the snake and uh, kind of let them do their thing. Everyone pitched in on set, including the actors. Sid Haig did his share of manual labor. I can remember pushing trucks up a hill and stuff like that when we did the big dollhouse because we were in an area that was overgrown and they had to go in with machetes and chop down bamboo and stuff so we could get trucks through. And, and you know, we were all there. It, it was, there was no star system, trust me, okay? There were no limousines, there were no bright lights, there was no champagne or caviar, okay? <laughs> it was snails cooked inside of coconut shells. Mm. Delightful. Pam had to do her own makeup on set. Her castmates taught her how. They also taught her how to fight on camera. You can't punch too fast or it won't look real. And one thing they told me is that, Pam, you know, when you go to swing at someone, you know, can you slow it down? Because we can't capture your, your strike you're hitting on film. <laughs> I'm like, you mean I have to slow down a punch? Yeah. I said, I can't. I'm going for the kill, you know, or they're going to kill me. That's how you really fight. And they go, well, okay, we just need to slow it down. And I said, how do I slow that down and not look hammy and campy and stupid? You're the boss. Oh, you're the boss. And don't forget you said that. Ask your first movie, because there was no Pam Greer yet no. as we knew it. It wasn't going to be because the audience wouldn't accept a black person as a heroine yet. Right, but that would very soon change because I think that's the last on-screen fight you ever lose. Exactly. 
The big dollhouse had mud fights, food fights, communal shower scenes. They were staples of exploitation movies. They might seem silly today, but they gave Pam the chance to find her voice to start getting comfortable in front of the camera. She's kind of coming from a long line of exploitation actors and actresses that really made an impression in the 60s and 70s. They're not coming from this learned acting place. They're naturals. They're absolute naturals. And they've just got a sense of fun and they have a great quirky personality and they're able to get it and it doesn't get stifled when the cameras roll. It comes out. Green, scared, and pretty. Oh, 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 are we gonna have fun. Nudity was common in women in prison films. It was one of the things that separated these movies from big studio pictures. Yeah, you know, I've been criticized for the idea of, of having nudity and uh, as being really gratuitous. But, you know, the fact is that was a requirement of the genre. It wasn't something I f- really approved of, but we had to do it. It's all about the illicitness, the voyeurism of, like, watching these women in prison do illicit things. So there's drugs, there's lots of nudity. That's Raquel Gates, a film professor at Columbia University. I don't think we called it softcore porn then, but I I would say this is a film that, like, in the 80s would have been labeled like softcore porn, essentially. Pam learned her character would be topless when she read her script for the first time. It was on the page. It was on the page. So you knew, oh, I'm going to have to, uh, at least from the top up, I'm going to be naked. If you just be the character, that's all I wanted to do, just be the character. Rather than shy away, Pam saw this as an opportunity. I felt very comfortable making it normal, black female feminine sexuality, and which was so oppressed and not appreciated. We weren't in the magazines, we weren't centerfolds, we weren't on the covers, we weren't considered the object of attraction and advertisement. This was the early 70s. Nudity was part of pop culture. Woodstock was still fresh in people's minds. Playboy magazine, at least to some, was considered high class. Casual sex was common in movies, even mainstream movies. Nudity was everywhere. Still, It wasn't common to see women fighting naked. That was a new twist. You don't fight very comfortably when you're nude or topless. That's what I find. I'm a terrible nude fighter. Your nipples get in the way. I'm sorry. Amen. You're preaching to the choir. All joking aside, Pam was comfortable doing nude scenes. But there were scenes that were harder to shoot. They were sleazier, more violent. Like when Harry, played by Sid Haig, rolls up to the women's prison with a cart full of produce. Harry bribes the guard to get into the cell block. All the women call out to Harry, but he stays a bit longer at Pam's cell. He approaches the women's cell, and she's in there with a group of women. He approaches them, and he says, I have a letter. Hi, Harry. Got anything for me today? Got a smuggled letter. What you gonna give me for it? Nothing. Okay. All right. Come here. And so Pam Greer's character basically lets him feel her up in order to get the letter. And 
she does, and, you know, she's fairly stoic about it. Okay, that's enough. But then she realizes that the letter wasn't for her. It was for someone else, and she's been tricked. And she breaks, essentially. You son of a bitch! This is foreboding! And for me, that scene is so evocative because, like, as the viewer, you immediately think, how much stuff has this woman within this narrative been putting up with? Has she been pretending to be okay with? You realize the toughness is not literally who she is, but a mask that she has been wearing in order to deal with the incredibly horrific conditions of being in prison. You're rotten, Harry. You know why? Because you're a man. All men are filthy. All they ever want to do is to get at you. For a long time, I let them get at me. That's why I'm in this dump. But no more, you hear me? I'm not going to let a man's filthy hands touch me again. Every now and then, I have to remind myself that before the big dollhouse, Pam had never acted, not even in a school play. But here she was, 21 years old, stealing scene after scene. I wanted to see how she did it, and I knew exactly where to turn. To the book, An Actor Prepares, by Konstantin Stanislavski. It's still in print. One part caught my eye. It's on page 182 in my edition. Stanislavski writes about what he called emotion memory. Just as your visual memory can reconstruct an inner image of some forgotten thing, he wrote, your emotion memory can bring back feelings you have already experienced. This emotional memory is an important acting tool. Pam clearly knew how to use it, even when she was just a novice actor. She learned from the book how to reach into the past, find a difficult memory, and use it to create a performance. All the emotions Pam suppressed with her tough exterior became tools in her acting toolbox. They were easy to surface, now that she finally had an outlet. Coming up, Pam worries about her future with Kareem. But the fact that I was willing to lose my life for someone who has a doctrine that I'm excluded, I don't, I'm messed up. Hi, this is Andy Katz, host of March Madness 365, presented by Grammarly. This week on the podcast, listen as we break down the latest AP poll and give you insights on my updated Power 36. Listen to March Madness 365 with Andy Katz, presented by Grammarly, wherever you get your podcasts. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that gives your team an instant first draft in a few clicks, not a few hours. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. Grammarly works seamlessly across 500,000 apps and websites. Get personalized on-brand writing help everywhere your team works. Learn what better writing can do for your company at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. 
who shall dwell in thy holy hills. None but the pure in heart. None but the pure in heart. Before rehearsals, Pam used to warm up by singing gospel. One morning on the set of the Big Dollhouse, Sid Haig heard her singing. He was astounded. He says, so what are you doing? I said, well, Stanislaus, he says, I have to sing and vocalize my instrument and warm up. He says, yeah, that's, you know, warming up. He says, I do it all the time. And he would have just chills, cry, he would tear up. And he says, I just love gospel music. You know, he says, just does something to my soul. And I said, yeah, it really does. Pam and Sid started warming up together by singing. He'd harmonize. He could really sing. He, I said, did you ever do a doo-wop? Did you ever do street corner doo-wop blues? He says, yeah. And he encouraged me. Word got out about their singing. The cast and crew would stop what they were doing and come watch. Roger Corman also found out. He might have been a little annoyed that people weren't working, but it also gave him an idea. He approached Pam with a song, a song written for the Big Dollhouse. I'm a long-time woman And I'm serving my time And she actually recorded the title song, as I'm sure you know, that that Les Baxter wrote with a little input from me. And when I heard it, they said, we wrote it for you. I said, it's an octave too high. Can you lower it? You know, it's like too high for me. And they couldn't. I went, oh, it's straining. I would have arranged it differently. Oh, you would have? Yeah. I'm a long-time woman, and I feel no pain. I'm a long-time woman, and I lost my game. It would have been different on a bus, but it made it more Hollywood jazz. It made more, it was more Vegas. And it turned out that the black radio stations in places like Chicago had taken that soundtrack off the film and were playing it over the radio. The song hit the airwaves, and the big dollhouse became a hit. When the movie hit theaters, the studio sent Pam to Chicago for the opening. She and her co-stars posed for publicity pictures in a cage. Again, Quentin Tarantino. The girls are really funny, in it, and they have a really good camaraderie. You, you like them. You like, and you're really, like, rooting for them, especially at the end. You know, you, you want them to get away. You're, you're totally rooting for these girls. And Roger, apparently, he told me this himself, that when he saw The Big Dollhouse, he thought Jack Hill went too far. He thought it was, like, too sexual. He thought it was too violent. And he just thought it was too much. Then it became the biggest hit that they ever had, and so he completely changed his mind about that. There has never been a motion picture like... The Big Dollhouse. The Big Dollhouse made more than $5 million at the box office. Remember, this was back when tickets cost a dollar a piece. Roger Corman's production company started getting letters. You don't normally get fan mail for little pictures such as this, but we got a whole lot of fan mail. We were really amazed, and almost all of it singled out Pam Greer. What are you doing, Miss Greer? Where'd that thing come from? This is Corman on the I DVD of The Big Dollhouse. 
When we did the big dollhouse, we weren't thinking of the black market at all. We were just making a woman in prison picture. But when we saw the reaction to Pam, and we realized that these black-oriented films were doing so well, we featured her in an attempt to get both markets. Roger asked Pam to stay in the Philippines to shoot a second film, Women in Cages, another women in prison movie. Meet the dirty dolls of Devil's Island. Women in Cages, the sensational new motion picture that rips the veil off the dirtiest racket ever conceived by the minds of vicious men. Women in Cages was shot in the northern mountains of the Philippines. It was more remote, lots of flooded rice fields. Pam's flight there had nowhere to land. It was fucked up. (laughs) We had to jump out a damn plane. The plane never stopped moving. Pam was told, quite literally, to jump out, and her luggage would meet her on the ground. There was no landing strip, so I'm like, like I'm going to die here in the Philippines. I can see them be bitten by a cobra, fall out of a plane, get hit by my luggage. I can see that. Pam plays Alabama, a sadistic lesbian prison matron. She had a large wheel where she would strap naked prisoners and then torture them. No one escapes from my prison. No one! Women in Cages has even more nudity and more violence than The Big Dollhouse. It was also shot by a different director. Put them down. And that's directed by a well-known director named Gerald de Leon. And he only did one movie for Corman, and he just did this one. And this is the antithesis of what the Jack Hill ones are like. It's not funny. It's not funny at all. It's very grim, and it's very downbeat. Innocent young girls held in cruel bondage, sold to the highest bidder to satisfy strange desires. Women in Cages was harder to shoot than the big dollhouse. The terrain was more tropical. Pam always felt like something was crawling on her. Insects, leeches, snakes. But Pam stuck it out. Soon she moved to a nicer hotel, and she got a pay raise, a small one. She was making more than $500 a week. It went up. The fee, the salary, the budgets, a few dollars, maybe an extra lunch or something. Not much, but I had no intention of doing any more. The first one, yes. The second one, ooh, that's some tuition. But the main thing is hang on to the job because I let the other ones go. So I really needed the tuition. I really wanted to get into UCLA film school. I don't think she really thought about that she could act until she went out there and did those movies in the Philippines, those first movies. This is film critic Odie Henderson. She's fearless. She did her own stunts. She didn't mind nudity. She was a powerful force on the screen, even when she wasn't saying anything. This is what makes you a star. These first two films in the Philippines put Pam Greer on the map, even if she was just a tiny island on that map. Pam made $8,000 for three months of work. The day Pam was set to leave the Philippines, Roger Corman asked her to stay and shoot another movie. But Pam wanted to go home to Los Angeles. She missed Kareem. She gave her kitten to her driver and headed to the airport. On the long flight, Pam considered the unexpected twist her life had taken. 
I got the confidence to go to the other side of the world to figure out who I was as a young woman. It was the best experience ever, and Roger didn't fire me because I had studied that book, and it gave me an entire different idea of what the actor does. Pam realized she had learned things in the Philippines she could never learn in school, and she thought about Kareem. Do I love him or does he love me? What does love mean at that moment in time? That's when I started opening up. Would she give up film school for Kareem? Would she convert to Islam and marry him? Or she thought, maybe there was a third option. Maybe she was an actress after all. When Pam got back to the States, she made a stop in Denver to tell her mom about her adventures in the Philippines. Then it was back to Los Angeles and Kareem. He lived in Malibu when he was in town. Pam often stayed at his condo. One weekend, some of Kareem's friends came over. Pam was asked to leave the room. When he's in the room or Muslim men are in the room, and he's pretty orthodox, and women have to leave. And so, but make us a tuna fish sandwich and leave it here and, you know, and, and then come back and clean up. Pam decided to go for a drive. She reached into the glove compartment and took out a silk scarf and wrapped it so her head would be covered. I was going to drive and see what it's like to, you know, see how people react to me, see how I feel driving with the scarf on my head. And it, it really affects you. She was driving on a winding two-lane highway called Malibu Canyon Road. The windows were down so she could enjoy the breeze. Well, the wind from the window, I came in, blew the scarf down over my eyes, and it got entangled in my face and I couldn't get it off and I almost drove off the cliff. I said I could have lost my life, but the fact that I was willing to lose my life for someone who has a, a doctrine that I'm excluded, I don't... I'm messed up. Pam drove down to the beach and went for a walk. She was in love with Kareem, and she believed he loved her too. But she struggled to reconcile her feelings with the life Kareem wanted to lead. When Kareem's friends left the condo, they saw Pam walking on the beach, wearing cut-off shorts. And I was on the beach thinking to myself, with the headscarf on, and they saw me, and it was his teacher. One of them called Kareem and told him what he'd seen. When Pam got back, Kareem wasn't happy. And I was just shaking, trembling, and I kept asking questions. I said, do you really want me to walk behind you? Do you really want me to serve you? Pam remembers Kareem saying yes. We invited Kareem Abdul-Jabbar to talk to us for the podcast, but he politely declined. Pam was depressed in the weeks after their fight. When Kareem left to go to Milwaukee, she didn't go to the airport to see him off. Next on The Plot Thickens, a birthday and a wedding. We'll be right back.
the National Women's Soccer League kicks off March 16th on ION. It's a new Saturday night destination featuring the best players in the world. Yeah. 25 Saturday nights, 50 matches, all season long on ION. Alan Frenchel Williams slips through. Here's a shot and it's in. This is a game changer for sports. Sabina takes a shot herself. Hammers it home. See the full schedule and find where to watch at IonNWSL.com. We got another day of NBA action. And with FanDuel, every night is a watch party. So it's time for your FanDuel crew to make their bets. So, what's the move tonight, gang? You know that new customers who bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Woohoo! We're heating up, fam. Bet all the stars with all your friends and make every moment more only on FanDuel. New customers bet $5, get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Make every moment more with FanDuel. Plus and present in Virginia. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued is non-withdrawable bonus vest that expires seven days after receipt. See full terms at fanduel.com slash sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. It was May 26th, 1971. Pam's 22nd birthday. She planned to spend the day relaxing at home. I was in this kind of house condo that I got to stay in until I found an apartment. And it was in California, Los Angeles, and um, was in the living room. It was a sunny day. Pam had been answering birthday calls all day, so she wasn't surprised when the phone rang. This time, it was Kareem. It was very friendly and up, and it was strange, and I thought it was for my birthday. He was calling to wish me happy birthday. And he said, well, first of all, happy birthday, great. Okay, he said, so I want to talk to you. I said, okay, he says, are you going to commit to, you know, to Islam and convert so we can get married? I said, yeah, eventually, but I just need more time. You had three years, I've had three months, and I had more questions that you feel uncomfortable answering. It was a conversation they'd had often, but this time, something felt different. He says, well, if you don't commit to me today, then I'm going to marry someone who is prepared for me. I, um, I can't, I mean, to articulate how I felt, it's, it's very complicated, very complex, because there's so many emotions, all these things, and I said, okay, so maybe I wasn't the only one, maybe there's more, but he's getting married to someone else if I don't commit. And I, and he said, yeah, she's been prepared for me. <laughs> I said, prepared? What do you mean prepared? Like a sandwich, you know? And I, I was not being nice. Should have been more respectful. I understood what he was saying. Pam thought back to the book Kareem gave her about being a Muslim woman and all the conversations they'd had about Islam. And he was preparing me, and I didn't want to be prepared. I didn't say no or scream or, or be defensive. Or it didn't come up with any drama. I just, I just said, okay. 
And I remember myself as just lying down and looking up at the ceiling and not breathing, just going, because he started out as a best friend. And not until later did I think, like I dodged a bullet or, wow, he set me free, but I stood my ground. I felt a sense of freedom, my own earned freedom. I lost the love, and I did love him. Pam spent the rest of her birthday crying. Two days later, at 4 o'clock in the morning on May 28th, Kareem got married. I couldn't make him happy. That made him happy. The newlyweds went on a honeymoon tour of Africa. Kareem sent Pam a postcard from Egypt. Pam, I hope this note finds you well. This place is out of sight, but I'm glad to be going home. Peace, Kareem. Pam threw herself into work. By the fall of 1971, she was on a plane back to the Philippines to shoot three more films for Roger Corman. So that's three jobs and tuition, money. I was like, I I thought it was something else, like going to school. But I learned so much from the Filipino production, which loved American movies so much. They knew dialogue, they knew equipment. They were just enamored about American filmmaking. The first movie they shot was Twilight People, made by Filipino director Eddie Romero. Half man, half beast, all monster, the Twilight People. It's based on the island of Dr. Moreau, the H.T. Wells story, where Dr. Moreau wants to create a better race of people by kind of merging them with animals. Pam plays the Panther Woman. This is film critic Odie Henderson. Well, I enjoy it every time she attacks somebody. I like horror movies, and I'm a gore person, so I enjoyed her just coming out of nowhere and attacking folks. If you think about it, there weren't any black monsters. You know, the, the Beast Must Die has the first black werewolf, and then Blackula the same year has black vampire. And we have Pam Greer as, you know, black Catwoman. So it was a little bit ahead of its time, I think, in terms of casting. It was a physical role, and once again, Pam did a lot of her own stunts, partly because they didn't have the right stunt double for her. And then when they said, okay, Pam, here's your stuntman. He was half my size, covered in brown makeup, with a rug over his head to look like an afro. I was like, what the fuck? That does not look like me. After running around the jungle as a panther, Pam shot another Women in Prison movie with Jack Hill. The big dollhouse had been such a hit, Roger and Jack decided there was more money to be made. Abused by savage degenerates. So I wrote a sequel called The Big Birdcage, where I I used Pam Gurr and Sid Haig, and I wrote the rules specifically for them. Where is Jungle? Don't you think I'd tell you before I let this fat pansy slap me around? She and Sid Haig became my um, Tracy and Hepburn. She had no right not to tell Her first real performance performance doesn't really happen until uh, The Big Birdcage. Again, here's Quentin Tarantino. That's her first real terrific performance. And I think partly it's because she's teamed up with Sid Haig. 
the way she is. I mean, they're almost like they're playing these bandito kind of revolutionaries and like they're just dynamite together. And she's just such an amazing character. And she really, really becomes a character. I was going to cut it off and try to pull that shit on me. And I do think it's a situation. By that point, she had gotten really comfortable. She had gotten better and better and better. She knew what she was doing. One thing Constantine Stanislavski says, learn your lines and be in character. So when they first see you, they see that character. And they can add on or add less, but that's what they see. The third movie Pam shot was called Chains of Hate, also directed by Eddie Romero. Now there's a boat waiting to get me and my money out of here for good. AIP eventually changed the title to Black Mama, White Mama. It was a takeoff of the Tony Curtis and Sidney Poitier movie. Get off my back. I am married to you. Now, what do I care? You married to me, all right, Joker. And here's the ring. But I ain't going south on no honeymoon now. This is basically a ripoff of the Defiant Ones. You have prisoners, one black, one white, and they are handcuffed together and they escape. And they don't like each other. Pam spends the movie handcuffed to a blonde actress named Margaret Markov. They did their own stunts. They fought. They were both physical people. They were equally matched. They have good chemistry together. And I add the humor. And whatever Margaret Markov did, you know, I did the complete opposite of it. So we were like Mutt and Jeff. We were the first buddy, you know, female buddy pair. Who put you in charge? You'd be in the cell right now if it wasn't for me. Yeah, yeah, but what have you done for me lately? While Pam was in the Philippines, studio executives back in Hollywood were trying to cash in on a new trend. Movies made for a black audience. There were reasons for that. The country was changing. This is a moment where white flight from urban centers to the suburbs had really changed the demographics of the core areas of, you know, most cities in this country. Jacqueline Stewart is the director of the Academy Museum and one of the hosts of Turner Classic Movies. So these massive movie palaces that have been built in, you know, every major city, sometimes two or 3,000 seats, this majestic spaces, they were starting to decay. And one reason they were allowed to decay is because that white audience wasn't the core audience anymore. Black audiences were going to many of these theaters so it was a real business opportunity for the industry to think about how to exploit a black audience. And that term exploit, you know, sounds negative, but you know, it's like a, a business concept of exploiting a market. Hollywood saw dollar signs after watching the success of an independent director named Melvin Van Peebles. He made a movie in 1971 called Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song. I'm going to say a black Ave Maria for you. It was made very cheaply, independently, but he wanted to do something that was not co-opted by, dictated by white Hollywood. The budget for Sweet Sweetback was $500,000. It made $15.2 million at the box office. Another movie arrived a few months later, proving that kind of success and profit margin was not just a one-off. Shaft's his name. Shaft's his game. Shaft was a detective movie from MGM starring Richard Roundtree with a soundtrack by Isaac Hayes. It was directed by a photographer named Gordon Parks who became the first black director to make major motion pictures in Hollywood. Shaft was a runaway hit. It earned $13 million at the box office 
enough to save MGM from bankruptcy. So every time that Hollywood is broke, they suddenly remember that Black people exist. That's Columbia University film professor Raquel Gates. You couple that with the wake of the civil rights movement, the rise of the Black power movement, the Black is beautiful aesthetic, the popularity of soul music, and you combine all of those things and you get black exploitation. That's what some people were starting to call these black action movies, black exploitation films. The lead roles were going to black men. That was about to change. The low-budget movie studio where Pam had once worked, American International Pictures, or AIP, asked Jack Hill to make an action movie starring a black actress. And Jack knew just the woman for the job. On our next episode... My name's Coffin. Pam plans her biggest role yet and becomes a sensation. I couldn't walk on the street. It'd be 5,000 people. Her movies sell millions of tickets and generate considerable controversy. There has to be a change because all of the films are too negative. I'm literally sailing into a storm with no sails and it's dark and the waves are hitting me in the face and how I'm like surviving. That's what it was like. Angela Carone is our director of podcasts. Story editors are Joanne Farian and Sherry O'KK. Audio editing and sound design by Mike Volgaris. Script writing by Yaakov Friedman, Rachel Pilgrim, Angela Carone, and me. Yaakov Friedman is our senior producer. James Sheridan is our researcher and fact checker. Mixing by Glenn Matulo and Tim Pelletier. Production support from Julie Bitton, Mario Riles, Susanna Zapeta, Liz Winter, Allison Fire, Phil Richards, and Reed Hall. Web support by Betsy Gooch. Thanks to David Byrne, Taryn Jacobs, Carolyn Wigmore, Dexter Fedor, Marcy Sacco, Genevieve McGillicuddy, and Mark Wins, and the entire TCM marketing team. Original music in the podcast comes from the band Cadillac Jones. Believe it or not, their bass player is also our lawyer, John Renault. Thanks to John, Kristen Hassel, and Salang Moulton. Thomas Avery of Tune Welders composed our theme music. Our executive producer is Charlie Tabish. TCM's general manager is Paula Shagnon. Check out our website at tcm.com backslash the plot thickens. It has info about each episode and photos from throughout Pam's life. Again, that's tcm.com backslash the plot thickens. I'm your host, Ben Mankiewicz. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Hi, this is Andy Katz, host of March Madness 365, presented by Grammarly. This week on the podcast, listen as we break down the latest AP poll and give you insights on my updated Power 36. Listen to March Madness 365 with Andy Katz, presented by Grammarly, wherever you get your podcasts. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that gives your team an instant first draft in a few clicks, not a few hours. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. Grammarly works seamlessly across 500,000 apps and websites. Get personalized on-brand writing help everywhere your team works. Learn what better writing can do for your company at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done.